Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the creative, artistic side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, and I am speaking to you from Reykjavik, Iceland, where this week been kind of a crazy week for me actually. I've not had a huge amount of time for games, not as much as usual. It's just been a lot going on. Um, and I think that some of you know if you listen to this show that I work in games doing some publicity and communications for a startup called Dot Big Bang. Um, it's a web-based game platform and we had a big week this week. We're sponsoring the Global Game Jam uh, Game Jam competition. Which is a super cool event actually. There's people all around the world have jam sites, people get together, form teams, and then make games in a really short time. It's a really fun project. And it's been fun being a part of it actually. Like a big part of my work this week has been pulling together materials for live streams about making games, um, talking to developers, um, organizing video and uh, game footage and um, screenshots of games and instructional material on how to make games. So that's all been really super interesting to me. Um, it's all happening in the, the PT time zone, so I've been pulling some all-nighters. But it is really exciting seeing the Global Game Jam happen and come together. The actual jam happens over the next 10 days or so, so it's going to be a really fun time seeing what kind of Game Jam games people make using Dot Big Bang. And we'll be looking at them all afterwards and having a big rap stream um, and looking at those games live on stream. So I can't wait for that all to happen. It's kind of inspiring, actually. Um, and I think it does give a really useful perspective uh, when talking about games to have seen them come together and to have seen game jams and to have seen uh, professionally made games all come together as well and the making of the sausage that that entails. But that... That really busy week did mean that at the end of the day I just really collapsed into bed and I didn't have lots of bandwidth left for playing but I did find the perfect game if you've got no brain power left in your head to relax with. It's a Switch game, of course, because you want to play it lying on your back. It was Kirby and the Forgotten Land and I've been playing this one since it came out. I succumbed to the hype when Kirby and the Forgotten Land first released and I bought it. I've never played a Kirby game before. I've heard a lot of people say that this is the most advanced and interesting Kirby game that has ever been released. And I love Nintendo. And so I bought Kirby in the Forgotten Land and I've been playing it bit by bit by bit. Um, it's such a relaxing game, honestly. It's, it's so unchallenging and so cheerful that I think it's a game that you could play when you really can't focus that much. And that's the purpose that it served for me. And I have to say, I think that's something that Nintendo are very, very good at. They're good at these low friction, cheerful, just enjoyable games. There's so much love and so much joy in Nintendo games. I'm like for all of the the hype and the technically advanced stuff that we see in the Last of Us type games and Ragnarok and the Sony stuff that's going out and the you know the technical supreme skill that is involved in making games like Forza and things like that. Um, there is something just so joyful about what Nintendo do, even if they are not the most technically demanding games of all. So being a little pink blob and just half absorbing a car in my mouth and then driving around like on the top of that car, like a little crazy sucker who has just like half eaten the car. And <laughs> it's just so much fun being Kirby. Um, 
So I had a really good time with that one. It does have quite a crazy psychedelic end game that I think people have talked about quite widely. Um, I'm going to gather my thoughts on Kirby and the Forgotten Land and see if there is enough there for a full review, because it is quite a light game. It's mechanically light, um, and the story is very light too. So I'm going to have a little think about it. I'm going to let that one settle in, um, and I will talk about it again, whether it's a full review or whether it's just a more full synopsis in the intro of a future episode. Um, there are a few games that I am I'm still playing. I fell off them a little bit uh, last week, but I am still playing The Excavation of Hobbs Barrow, um, a very, very beautiful and vibey and atmospheric pixel art point and click that is on the Switch. It does use the touch screen, which helps. Um, it does have a highlight objects function, um, which also helps. So it has the modern accoutrements that make point and click games um, better than back in the day when I played them as a kid with the original Monkey Island. Not much pixel hunting and that sort of thing so far. Um, and I'm going to keep playing that one. It's got this Wuthering Heights atmosphere where you're out in the moors in a tiny village in England. Um, so I'm quite curious to see what is down there in Hobbs Barrow. Um, I'm also still playing Melatonin, also on the Switch. The dreamy neon rhythm game with beautiful cartoon graphics. I'm enjoying that game. I think I'm near the end, and I will for sure talk about that one more when I complete it. Um, and finally on my still playing list is Blacktail, the first-person Skyrim-esque witchy game with a deep Eastern European folklore, very, very dark, um, lots of demons and strange forest entities. Um, I would say that I am teetering on the edge of falling off Blacktail. Um, it's a good game, um, but something about it is not... You know when you're playing a game and you're enjoying it every time you play it? But when it comes to gaming time, you just struggle to sit down and pick up the controller. Blacktail is one of those. It's like every time I play it, I have fun. But every time I'm about to start gaming, I just go, nah. And then I play a little bit of Kirby instead. <laughs> but I do intend to finish Blacktail. I'm about 60% of the way through the game. Um, and I am having fun with it. There's a lot to recommend about it. So I will loop around to Blacktail as well. Um, I got a couple of new codes this week as well. These have been added to the podcast slate. Um, both pixel art games, actually, and both on Switch. It seems like I'm having a very Switch January. It's been all Switch all the time, whereas like at the end of last year, it was all PlayStation all the time. Um, the codes that I got were for Jack Move. Um, I saw this one on a Games You Might Have Missed in 2022 list. So now that Games of the Year time is over, I'm still not done with lists of games. I'm going back and looking for yet more lists. Lists of things that didn't make the lists. Lists of things that fell between the cracks. Jack Move was one of those. It's a really cool-looking pixel art cyberpunk RPG. JRPG, I should say. It's top-down. It has turn-based combat, beautiful art, um, loads of stats and buffs and skills and objects and all of those things we expect from old-school Final Fantasies. Um, it's got some classic pixel cyberpunk vibes as well. And um, When I watched the trailer, I thought of the original Shadow Run, which was a childhood favourite of mine. Um, so I'm really looking forward to Jack Move. I've got it downloading right now. Um, a Space for the Unbound was the other game that I've added to the codes list. This is a slice-of-life pixel art adventure set in 90s rural Indonesia. Um, this one seems like a much less demanding game, less systems heavy. It's like a pixel art exploration story game. Um, it looks absolutely gorgeous, and I'm all in on games that are set in countries that I'm not 
super, super aware of. So 90s rural Indonesia is like a yes, please for me. I want to know um, what this game contains. I can't wait to play it. Um, it's been getting some good reviews. I think it was in the 80s on Metacritic. So I'm going to be playing A Space for the Unbound soon as well. There was also a little bit of news this week. There was an Xbox Direct. Um, most of the games weren't for me. I think Redfall, um, while it looks interesting in that arcane way, I'm sure that arcane fans will be uh, fascinated by this one. It's multiplayer um, and it's about vampires. Um, and those two things are like big red crosses for me. So that one wasn't for me. There's also a new Minecraft game coming out, um, which looks like a lot of fun, but not a John thing. Very multiplayer. Elder Scrolls Online was in the presentation. Um, I tried that one once. I played it for an hour. Um, it felt like a, like a more janky Skyrim. Um, I didn't have a lot of fun with it. It was kind of fine for an hour, but it was like, okay, I think I understand what that is. Um, but you tell me, please, um, on Twitter or whatever, if you think that I should go in again. It has been several years. It's been maybe three or four years since I played Elder Scrolls Online. So I don't know. Maybe it's upped its game in that time. Um, the news was that they're dropping tons of DLC. So if you're interested in that, there's going to be a lot of free stuff, free content coming to Game Pass and so forth. But the two games that caught my eye were Forza Motorsport, um, which is the sim sister of uh, Forza Horizon, which I really enjoyed. Um, this one is a more in-depth game than Horizon. And I think I think it started with Motorsport and then they started making Horizon as like the, the fun, shiny, colourful arcade uh, sibling, which is probably more in my taste bracket. But Forza Horizon was such a huge surprise to me. Um, the open world nature of it, um, the way it looked and sounded and felt to play, it was on my games of the year list to my own surprise. And so I do have some curiosity about Forza Motorsport. It's a very different proposition, but if it does come to Game Pass, then I will give it a try. It does look stunning. Um, and, you know, racing games are a bit of a niche now. They were such a big part of gaming when I grew up. Like, uh, racing games were one of the, the top genres. Um, and whilst that might have been overtaken by these third-person action adventures that I guess are at the top of gaming now... Um, and the multiplayer games, like, I mean, from another perspective, you could easily say that games like Fortnite and League of Legends and Apex have taken over now as well. Um, so driving games have occupied something of a niche, I would say, in the, the gaming zeitgeist. That's my opinion, at least. You may disagree with that. But, but I am curious to try Forza Motorsport to see where this genre has gotten to and to play the game that is at the apex of it. Um, if it's on Game Pass, then I don't even have to spend £60 just to try it. Um, so that's a really nice thing to look forward to. Um, and they also shadow dropped a game by Tango Gameworks called High Fire Rush, this anime style um, action rhythm game. I have not played it yet. I have downloaded it. It looks really colourful and really fun. Um, and coming off the back of Melatonin, which I guess was the, the ultimate um, easy way back into rhythm games, um, I could be curious to try Hi-Fi Rush. I did struggle last year with Metal Hellsinger, um, something about 3D action and staying on rhythm. I think it was too much for my little, my little soft brain to handle, um, and so I could either shoot straight or stay on rhythm, but shooting straight and staying on rhythm uh, just wasn't really happening for me. So I'm curious about Hi-Fi Rush. It seems like more of a, a melee game with area of effects and aerial juggles. So I will certainly give that one a go, and maybe I'll have something to say about it next week. 
I did also play one game that I got a code for that I'm going to give a little rundown of. It's not a full review. Um, it's called Lone Ruin uh, by Cuddle Monster, who I think is a solo developer, um, Hannes Ram. And I was quite into the look of this one. It's a really cool looking twin stick top down dungeon crawler. Um, it has this dark neon style that I think of as Nordic pop style. Um, from bands like The Knife and so forth. Looks a lot like Sayonara Wild Hearts and Scourgebringer. Um, it has that purples and pinks and blues. Everything looks like it's under a UV light. Um, but it's not quite as good as either Sayonara Wild Hearts or Scourgebringer. Um, it has a 90s breakbeat soundtrack that I quite liked. Um, I think it's intended as a roguelike um, twin stick shooter. So you come into a dungeon, you pick a weapon, you go from room to room, um, you take out waves, and then you get a little prize at the end, um, and then there are bosses. So it's a, a format that we are very familiar with in a very crowded genre. Um, I've played, I would say, five runs of this game over the course of an hour or so, um, and I didn't really like it, honestly. I felt like the, the roguelike nature um, wasn't quite there. I felt like there were three rooms that were all the same and just came in a slightly different order, so the gameplay didn't feel different from run to run. Um, which is a strike against a roguelike. Um, I used lots of different weapons. You get lots of weapons out of the box. I tried a different one every time. Um, didn't really find a favourite. Um, and I, I have to say that like in a crowded genre with many, many good games, um, I guess we had Hades a couple of years ago that really set the bar for roguelike dungeon crawlers, what you can do with them. Um, we had Rogue Legacy 2, and we had uh, Nobody Saves the World last year as well. And all three of those built very interesting systems on the top of roguelike gameplay. Um, this game does not do that. It's just the the, uh, the rooms, really. Um, the story is, is not really there. Um, so you don't really feel invested in what you're doing in this game. I guess it's a game that seems to want to thrive just on the gameplay. But the gameplay itself is also very simple. Um, at least in the, the short, early area that I played, I didn't feel like there was a handhold for me to hold on to to really get into this game. Um, Rogue Legacy 2 definitely had a hook because you get a new character every time. That's interesting. And you have a home base. You get to build your castle. Nobody Saves the World is very interesting because whilst the dungeons are roguelike, there is an overworld map that's basically like a comedy Zelda game, which is just brilliant. You get to run around in the overworld do your dungeon dives, the dialogue is great, the story is great. This game, no overworld, no home base, um, no uh, underworld uh, by comparison to Hades, where every time you come back from a run, you can talk to people, advance the story. So it feels to me like this is a game that is just missing the hook. Um, and that is kind of sad. Um, I wish there was a little more to it. And Whilst I am loath to hop off a game after an hour and review it, that's why I'm not putting this in the reviews section of the show, um, I didn't feel like there was enough in this game for me to invest the time it takes. There are so many of these kind of games out there. There are so many that I want to play. You know, I got a backlog full of Children of Mortars and that kind of thing. Um, so I'm going to skip uh, Lone Ruin, but I did want to give a shout out to it. Um, if you are particularly in love with the aesthetic that I talked about, and you want a no-nonsense uh, dungeon crawler where you don't have to worry about story, you don't have to worry about build particularly, and you just want to do fast-paced runs with nothing in between, just a very stripped-back, naked, twin-stick action shooter, uh, short runs, maybe it's for you. It certainly wasn't for me. Uh, that is Lone Ruin. 
And before we get into the reviews portion, where I'm going to talk about Lil Gator Game and I'm going to talk about Astro's Playroom, two very light, fun games that I chose to start off my gaming year, let me briefly mention Patreon. This is a Patreon-supported show. You can support it for a dollar, a pound, a euro a month, or, or more if you would like, over at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. In return, you get invited to our Discord community, a little quiet corner of the internet to talk about games. Um, I do like that the Discord is patron-only, actually, because it does mean that the people who are there really want to be there. They want to be there enough to put Patreon money into this podcast. And so Acts, I think, is a really good filter for people. We get such good people in our Discord. Um, you're welcome to join us. That's at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Um, you also get bonus episodes and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, thanks to all of my patrons, and thanks to the most recent two, Zap and Gordon. Welcome to join us. Please do so. And with all of that said, let's move on to the reviews part of the show. First up, a little Sony game called Astro's Playroom. Astro's Playroom was a really cool little game that came packaged with every PS5. It was on the hard drive already. There's the sequel to Astrobot Rescue Mission, the PSVR launch title that I loved, adored, and have talked about on the show. So I was really happy to get a little Astro game with my PS5. It was developed by Team Asobi and Japan Studio. Um, at least that's what it says on Wiki. Um, I think. Japan Studio might be gone now, so maybe it turned into Team Asobi or something like that. It's published by Sony, of course, and the game is described as a free tech demo for the DualSense controller, um, which seems a little ungenerous for this one. It's more than a tech demo, it's a really fun game in its own right. Um, but watching the Noclip documentary about the making of this game, it seems that they initially did plan for it just to be a tech demo. Um, but Team Asobi really, really ran with it and built it into more than it was ever intended to be. Um, and they did a really good job in doing that. So this should be considered a game and definitely not a tech demo. It is a short game though. It only takes a couple of hours to complete it. Um, it's a platforming game set largely inside the workings of the PlayStation. So it has this fun thing where you start off on a little beach area. You can play a little uh, ball game. You can run around. Everything is interactive. If you brush past a plant or jump on one, it will bounce you. There are platforms everywhere. There are scores of little robots just running around, having fun on this beach. A lovely jaunty soundtrack and so forth. But then you come into an area where you can enter different areas of the PlayStation. You can go into a cooling fan level that's based on the cooling system of a PlayStation. Um, and use the fans to move around. You blow on the mic to make things happen, to make the fans spin and things like that. So it's really showing off the controller for sure. Um, you can also go into the, the CPU area where all the memory is and there's like a robot you can talk to there and, and all kinds of fun things like that. And I think the first thing that really caught my attention about this game outside of the super fun mood that it has was just how well it does use the DualSense. Um, the vibrations in the DualSense that really are the selling point for that controller, I think, and what sets it apart as the best controller 
um, I've ever held in my hands was really shown off here. And I think when you walk across the sand, you get this little crunchy feeling coming through the controller um, that really does make you feel like you're, you're running on sand. It was so cool. Um, and then later, when you're skating on ice, you get a whole different type of vibration that gives you that feeling of skating. Um, and the sound is great too. It really comes together. It uses the speaker on the DualSense to give you little um, UI sounds and things like that, and little extra sounds. It also uses the motion controls in the controller so that sometimes in this game, much like in the first Astrobot game, you get a little suit that you can put on that um, changes the gameplay. In Astrobot Rescue Mission, you would have to pull down on the touchpad of the controller and you could see a little Astrobot standing on your controller in the VR and you pull back a little uh, catapult and then shoot your little Astrobot into the level to start the level. Really, really lovely. And they've, they've used that, that motif again, um, but this time you put on different suits, like you can get into a water cannon and you use the motion controls to look around um, and you're blasting things with a massive jet of water. Um, there's another one that's like a monkey suit that you put on that has two very powerful arms and you have to twitch the controller from left to right to reach these giant monkey arms up. I'm gesticulating wildly as I'm speaking, but of course you can't see that. Um, and you grab onto little ledges, you grab onto little nooks, and you have to work your way up in this really physical, tactile kind of way. Um, hang on to tight ropes and pull yourself up, heave yourself up a cliffside. So it's, it's really a fun little platformer. Um, I've often thought that it would be great if Astrobot Rescue Mission came out for regular um, PlayStation, but I guess it was built entirely in VR. Um, so it's a real shame that more people didn't get to play that game. I've often felt that because it's tied to PSVR hardware, it got a little bit of a rough ride. It was like a tens across the board critical success, but it only got to be played by the people who bought a PSVR. Um, so this introduces Astrobot to the wider PlayStation public. Um, I'm really happy that it does. I think that Astrobot generally is as close as any company has come to capturing the fun of Nintendo 3D platformers like Mario and like uh, Kirby, like Mario Odyssey style. Um, I'm a big fan of the 3D platforming genre. I've always loved Spyro and Crash and all of those games. I grew up with them uh, to some degree. So it's really lovely to see this game carrying the flag um, for that whole genre, really. This is where um, it's going when it's not on Nintendo. I think this is as good as it gets. Um, and I would say that if you are a PlayStation fan, this is an absolute love letter to the history of PlayStation. It really is a celebration of the PlayStation. Um, you see little vignettes of robots uh, reenacting scenes from classic PlayStation games. So you'll see these little robots that are filming, and they are filming like a Kratos and uh, what's his son called again? Um, oh, it's gone out of my head. Let's just call him Boy. Um, I want to say Atreyu, but that's the never-ending story. It's something like that. And you get to see those guys uh, paddling along on a little boat. You get to see uh, Metal Gear. There are robots that are using cardboard boxes and fun stuff like that. I think there's a Death Stranding one in there carrying a giant backpack stacked up. Um, and so every every time you're moving through one of the levels, you see little callbacks to classic PlayStation games. Um, and it, it made me smile every time. Um, it could be uh, perceived as a, 
a contrived sort of marketing exercise in some way. Um, and there is a little whiff of that, but I would say it's done with such good spirits that I felt that it was just like a happy celebration of all, all things PlayStation. Um, it has even a more hardcore um, celebration of PlayStation than that, in that the collectibles that you will find, if you find secrets, if you find little breakable walls, and you search every corner of this game, then you find uh, PlayStation hardware, past, present, um, and I was going to say future, but there is no future hardware, but past and present for sure. You'll find the original PlayStation, you'll find PlayStation 2 and 3, and all of the peripherals, the PSVR, the different uh, generations of controllers, even things like the multi-tap. This is something that I hadn't thought about for so long, but it was a little four-player adapter um, that you used to plug into the PlayStation so that you could play four-player games back in the day. Um, and all of those things are put into a central museum where you can come and look at them. They are huge in this museum, and you are tiny, and you can jump on them, you can jump on the buttons, you can open the PS1, open the top of it if you jump on the eject button. Um, and it's just really, really, really fun. Um, a real fun little game, a real joy to play, very varied in gameplay, um, light and breezy, over in two hours. I had a really good time with this one. Um, I'm doing the one finish a week challenge again this year, where there's a bunch of people on Twitter. Uh, we all have a little spreadsheet and a little Twitter chat. And whenever we finish a game, we post in the chat and we add it to the spreadsheet. Um, at the start of the year, I was thinking, I don't know if I'm going to have enough games to fill this spreadsheet this year. You don't literally have to fill a game, uh, finish a game once a week. Um, but by the end of the year, the aim is to have finished 52 games. So I thought I was going to start with something light, small, breezy, just to get something up on the board. Um, Astro's Playroom was a great choice. Um, if you do pick up a PS5, um, or if you do have a PS5 and haven't tried this one out, please do. It's a really fun little game. That's Astro's Playroom. game that I've got here is another small game, another cute little game. That's why I've packed it in alongside Astro's Playroom. Um, this one's called Lil Gator Game. It came out in December of last year. It sneaked out quietly during the Christmas month. Um, and there was a little buzz online about it. People did talk about this game. Um, it has a very colourful visual style, a little low poly visual style. Um, I was certainly drawn to the look of it um, from the email that I got about it. Um, it's developed by Mega Wobble, published by Playtonic, um, and it's a console exclusive for Switch. It's also available on PC and Mac. Uh, my guess is this will come out everywhere eventually. It got an 84 on Metacritic, so it went down very well with people, including a few 10 out of 10s. Um, How Long to Beat has it at 3 to 5 hours, uh, based on whether you are doing just the story or finding all of the secrets as well. I came in about the four hour mark as usual, so I was somewhere in between. Um, and the way that the developers describe this one is, there's a buddy atop every hill in this open world, movement focused adventure, and they all seem to need help. Bop cardboard baddies, brave serene hills and forests, and scale sheer rocks that only a kid would dare. 
and my take on this one is that Lil Gator Game is a rambunctious ramble over a pair of small islands on a young gator's summer break. It wears its short hike and Breath of the Wild influences on its sleeve, and it's carried along by lovely level design, bubbly music, and some heartfelt writing. Um, so I had a really nice time with Lil Gator Game. Um, I'm a big short hike fan and a huge Breath of the Wild fan. Um, and also, I think a short hike has had quite a lasting influence on indie games. It was such a concise experience and such a perfectly crafted little world. Um, and I think that that has inspired people to try and do the same thing. I think of games like Alba, a wildlife adventure, which was like a 3D version of a short hike. Um, a short hike is isometric um, and the camera is a strange little system that kind of turns on 45 degree axis when you when you round a corner. So the camera is out of your control. Um, it's nothing to knock a short hike though. It, it does work in the game, but there's something very nice about just wandering around in a third person game, controlling your camera, looking where you're going um, and having that full level of control. Um, and I think one of the best things about Lil Gator Game is that it takes the mood of a short hike, which is just unimpeachably cheery, um, really enjoyable. Um, as I have said before, it has that atmosphere of when you're on a holiday somewhere. Like if, if you're me, maybe you're in a strange city you've never been to before um, and you come out of wherever you're staying and maybe you've got a couple pins in the map that you've got in mind, but really you're just going to wander. You don't know what the day is going to hold. Um, and that that specific emotional feeling um, is something that I really treasure and that I really look forward to. Um, and so a short hike really gave me that feeling. I could almost feel like a warm wind and an empty day uh, laid out in front of me, just full of whatever I wanted to fill it with. Um, and games that have followed a short hike, like Alba um, and like Lil Gator Game, they, they have that too. They have that open-ended, um, unchallenging, undemanding sense of freedom and the sense that you're about to go on a little adventure. Um, that is certainly what you do in Lil Gator Game. Um, this game begins when you, the Lil Gator, um, are thinking like your sister has come back from college, your big sister who you played with throughout your childhood um, and who you had made your own fun with. You used to make adventures, you used to like pull on a little costume, get a little sword, a little wooden shield um, and go out and make stories together, like climb a hill and turn it into an epic journey in that childlike way where you're writing the adventure as you go. Um, but at the start of this game, the poor little gator has been so excited for their sister to come back from college and she's busy. She's got a laptop and she's sitting on a picnic table and she has to turn in some coursework. So she's not entirely up for um, just getting back to how things were. She's she's moved on a little bit. Um, and you, the little gator, are outraged about this. You've been looking forward to her return um, and you decide to try and make a game that will be so fun that she will snap shut that laptop and she'll come and play with you. That's all you want in this game. And so what you do as the Lil Gator is you pull together a group of friends and you decide you're going to make um, loads of cardboard monsters. You're going to build a fort in a play park by strapping on some paintings that you've done on bits of old cardboard. You're going to make this little island where you live into a fantasy wonderland, like a whole Zelda game, like a whole big game that you can run through. 
Um, and so your mates go off into the wilderness and they start putting up all of these baddies everywhere. Uh, they start putting up all of this cool stuff. And you, the little gator, you're going to test the game. You're going to see if it's good enough. You're going to see if it's fun enough that it's going to get your big sister out of her coursework. And so off you go around the island. There is a small island where you start. You learn some basic controls. Um, there is a glider, a lot like the glider from Breath of the Wild. Um, it's quite vertical and compact, like a short hike. Uh, you have a sword. Um, there are no moving baddies. They're all just bits of cardboard. And so as you run around this world, everywhere you look, you can see monsters that have been primitively drawn onto cardboard. And when you hit them, they fall down and you get uh, junk, which you can trade in. Um, and you have to go out there and test the game. And this evolves into some fun missions. After you've done the little uh, training area, you can swim across to the big island. Um, and at the big island, you will have to go and find out what's going on with the game. Find out if people are having an okay time preparing this amazing game for your sister. Turns out that there are some obstacles along the way. Uh, for example, there is a water park where the cool kids have decided to turn off the water because they're too cool for the water. Um, there is a bunch of bookish kids who've decided not to join the game because they want to learn more. They want to nerd out. They want to do preparatory work. They want to get extra credit about catching bugs and all different kinds of things, about insects, about plants, about botany. And you have to tempt them away from their work. Um, these turn into fun little missions that form the core of Lil Gator Game. Um, every time you meet a bunch of new kids... Um, you have to solve whatever problems they're having or distract them from ever, whatever work they are doing. Um, and this includes a bunch of fun little mini-games, like one of them needs to see a certain bird, but it's hiding in a bush. If you go and scare that bird out of the right bush, they can take a picture and then they'll be free. They've got the picture they need. Um, if you can find all of the mains to turn on the water park, then the cool kids will be forced to play, right? And they'll join your gang. Um, and also scattered across the island outside of these main missions, um, there are just kids just doing their own thing. You'll find a bunch of kids having a picnic. You might find a kid that is scared because there are a bunch of slime monsters closing in on them. Only cardboard, but still slimes. Um, if you knock down all of those slimes within the time limit, that kid will join the gang. Every kid that you distract or help... Um, groups together at the main play park of the island um, and as you get more friends um, then you can open up more areas open up more tasks until the fort is complete and you'll go and present the game to your sister so this is a really fun mini world in miniature i would say um, it's very breezy it's very light it feels like everywhere you go on the island there is something fun to do um, and somehow, I'm not quite sure how they did this, but somehow, um, everywhere you go on the island, it does feel like there is something. I never found myself backtracking or getting lost, even though there is no map in this game. Um, and I did sometimes wish that I could pull up the map, um, but there is no map to pull up. And yet still, maybe it's just the size of the island, maybe it's the game design. Um, I am drawn back to um, a lecture that I saw by Adam Robinson, who made a short hike, in which he said when he was playtesting a short hike, um, there is a shovel that you have to find early on. Um, there is only one shovel, and people were missing it, even though he thought he'd put it in the most obvious place possible. 
uh, people were missing the shovel and therefore they were missing out on that fun part of the game. And his design decision to try and fix this was to have five shovels in five different places, but if the player finds it, they all vanish. So instead of one opportunity to find the essential shovel, there were actually five, um, just so no player would miss it. Um, and I wonder if that is a part of Lil Gator game, because it felt like everywhere I went, I was just finding new things. Um, it felt like either the design is such that you are led from region to region just by intuition and by recognising landmarks and going to places you haven't been, um, or there is something else at work um, and the most important things that you have to find are just positioned in front of you so that you never miss anything. Um, either way, um, I have to compliment the design of this island. Um, it really does feel like you are just wandering um, loosely around the island, but somehow I found everything I needed to find in an intuitive, almost automatic feeling way, which was just wonderful. It felt like the ground was rising up beneath my feet everywhere that I went. Um, there are also little groups of enemies everywhere, and they're drawn in really fun ways. Like if you're climbing a mountain, the, the cardboard monsters that have been made are little rocks, little stalagmites and stalactites, or little bats in a cave. If you're by a waterfall, they are slimes, um, or they are water monsters, etc. So the monsters are always drawn to fit the area, just like a child might do it. Um, and if you look around and see monsters that you haven't whacked down, because uh, you whack down every monster. It's just so fun to do. So if you see unwhacked monsters, you kind of know you haven't been there before. Um, so maybe that was the system um, that made this game hang together as well as it did. There are some other fun little mechanics in here. Um, sometimes you'll be rewarded with cosmetics. Um, for example, you get a little plastic tray that you can sit on to slide down a hill, a little bit like the shield boarding in Breath of the Wild. Um, if you complete certain missions, you'll get different cosmetics, so that might become an actual shield. Um, you can ragdoll. That's one of the skills that you get. It just allows you to lie on the floor and rag down down a hill in a really funny way. Um, you'll get sword upgrades, so your little wooden sword might become like a lightsaber that someone's made for you. Um, upgrades. You might get a new hat. You might get a new outfit. Some of them have gameplay ramifications. Some of them are purely cosmetic but they were always fun to get. Um, there is a little store that you will find where you can trade in all of the trash that you are accruing um, for more cosmetics and more skills and more things that you might need for other missions. So there is a, a fully formed little uh, mini third-person action adventure um, all crunched into the beautiful little form of the little Gator game. There are also these little diverting side challenges, like there are often tight ropes between peaks very, very vertical game that allows you to climb. There is an endurance system. You have to build up your endurance in order to climb further. Um, there are little times challenges. You might find a friend who says, if you can hit down all of these monsters in 30 seconds, then I'll come and join your game. And so you have these little mini challenges all over the island that are really, really fun to do and that just keep the whole thing moving. Um, I was smiling for almost the whole time that I played this one, honestly. They did a really great job with it. As far as downsides, I mean, there really aren't many. Um, I would say that um, a short hike has a certain kind of magic that is lightning in a bottle. And I think in that game, it was maybe something to do with the fact that Claire, the protagonist of a short hike, is somewhat sad at the start of the game. There is something going on with Claire 
Um, and you have to figure that out as the game progresses. And something about the story and the way that Claire was written, even in just a few words that it was and the very casual text speak that it used, kind of resonated with me uh, more than the story of Lil Gator Game. The story here is really about, I think, growing up. Um, I won't spoil the conclusion, of course, but that's the theme of this story. It's about uh, transitioning. Like, you are still very much a child in this game, and your sibling is um, moving on from that. And so it's a pretty interesting little negotiation that goes on um, in between those periods of, like, self-realization. Um, and maybe maybe especially if you are a younger sibling, then maybe this would resonate more with you. I'm, I'm an older sibling. I have a younger brother. So I was probably the one sitting on the laptop rather than the one trying to get my older sibling's attention. Um, but some people have said that Lil Gator Game really resonated with them and that they felt that the themes were really well handled. So whilst it perhaps didn't land with me in quite the same way as comparable games like Short Hike, like Night in the Woods, um, it does have a really nice little story. It does have a really nice little moral to it. Um, some of the conversations that happen, for example, with the cool kids, like, are they really cool? How cool are they exactly? What does it mean to be cool? Um, and your own little gators, like endless, boundless, childish, uh, clumsy optimism. I mean, all of the little characters that you meet with the little things they have going on. Um, there is something here. Um, it was light, but this is a game that is light by default, that was made to be light. So it's not a real criticism. Um, and that's really all I have. The story didn't quite hit with me in the same way as a short hike, but I think it does for some people. Um, as far as the gameplay goes, it's it's seamless, really. Um, it's very low friction. I didn't bump into any bugs. I didn't bump into any problems. Um, I had no real uh, negatives. I had no real notes for this game, which is incredibly rare. Like, if you listen to the podcast, you'll know um, I usually have, like, at least a few notes to talk about the game. Uh, this time I didn't. It's a beautiful little game. Um, it's quite cheap to pick up, I think. Um, and if you have any love in your heart for Short Hike, if you're waiting for Zelda, uh, Tears of the Kingdom with bated breath, um, if you like that that cartoonish indie game style, you like a short experience that just does something, does it well, and then ends, um, then Little Gator Game might be for you. This was a really good game. Very glad to play it. Very happy to have picked it up. Very curious to see what this developer does next, because they really did a great job here. That is the Little Gator Game. <laughs> So that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Astro's Playroom and the Little Gator Game. Um, those are two delightful little games, really nice games to start off the year, really nice light games to play if you don't have a lot of bandwidth, if you don't have a lot of headspace. Games like Kirby and those two, um, I really like a game like that. I like a game that I can tune out to um, that doesn't demand the earth of me, that doesn't demand a um, high level of concentration, that is intentionally light and intentionally fun. Um, I always have a place in my heart for a game like that. Um, and those are some good ones. I would love to hear your thoughts on them. Um, I'm over on Twitter as Gaming in the Wild. Um, I had one of those tweets that just kind of pops off this week. Um, I asked people the question, uh, what is the most addictive you've ever been to a game? 
and I related the story of the, the one that I think sings most to me, and it was when I binged the entirety of Metroid Prime when it first released. Um, I was playing it for huge amounts of time. I think I, I got really close to the end in just a few days, um, and I had one strong memory of walking down the street sleep-deprived after playing Metroid Prime for way too long, way too late into the night. Um, and I was walking past a church and looked up and there was like a kind of knobbly stone bit up near the steeple. Um, and the thought that came into my head was, that looks like a grapple point. Um, and it was a very, a moment, a gamer moment where I knew that I'd played too much, but that thread popped off. There are a hundred replies on there. Um, and some of them are really good. Let's just have a look at some of them now. Um, some people say, Final Fantasy VII, I didn't go to college for two weeks. Metal Gear 4, I got it the day before it released and sat for nearly 24 hours completing the game before most people had even had a chance to install it. That's from CopyL3FT. Um, Dylan says, Wind Waker on the GameCube. Got it during spring break and played it for like eight hours a day for the whole week. I had calluses on my fingers after. Loved it. Um, I know that feeling. I think after Hollow Knight, I had calluses on my finger too. Um, Charlotte Gator says, possibly Hades, it started to fuck up my hand, so I had to wean myself off and teach myself strategies that involved less button mashing. Um, Miss Lisa says, Cyberpunk 2077 and Dying Light 2. It was the just one more gig, or just one more radio tower, or just one more this or that. Never have I felt so addicted to a game. I can relate to that too. Um, I had that with Cyberpunk. I did some map clearing um, in Cyberpunk and really just fell into the zone love an open world game where you can just kind of turn your mind off there were loads of good answers there some people said bloodborne somebody said Ab abandoned places on the amiga that's a game that i hadn't heard of but i really enjoyed going and looking it up so i would like to hear from you about Lil gator game or about astro's playroom or about lone ruin or any game that you think i should check out i'm always in the market for suggestions and recommendations things i haven't heard of or if you'd like to engage with that conversation about uh, being addicted to games i will leave a link in the description i'm also over on twitch instagram and facebook um, so you can find me there if you would like to talk there is of course the discord for patrons if you like what you've heard today or if you are a long-time listener who would like to start off the year by becoming a patron of the show you can do so at patreon.com slash gaming in the wilds um, and i will be back next week with a new episode um, i'm gonna have a think about whether it's going to be kirby i've certainly got thoughts on the game um, I don't know if there were enough thoughts uh, for a full review. Otherwise, maybe I will finally power myself over the line with Blacktail. Um, but Season, A Letter to the Future, is coming out on Tuesday. Um, and I've got so much anticipation for that game. It reminds me of when Sable first released. And I was almost tingling with anticipation to get my hands on it. So who knows, maybe I will have powered through Season, A Letter to the Future. And I can do a timely review of that game. Um, either way, I hope you'll join me. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other, and bye-bye for now.